Welcome to an episode of Better Together, Democrats and Republicans Who Love America, episode 38. Hi, four listeners. <laughs> and at times, six times more than four listeners, I appreciate you for listening, thinking. We don't have to agree. You can agree, disagree. That's fine. All of it, all of your responses to what I say is valid and absolutely you're entitled to think and feel how you wish. I'm just sharing mine <clears throat> because I also feel like I don't like media. I don't like media manipulation. That's really, is it my thinking like what really made me start this podcast? And it's like my voice back to go, no, you don't media manipulators by the way, on both sides of the aisle. And I just have an issue with that. I don't like it. I felt like, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I felt like I came from a earlier generation where there, I felt like maybe there was some more honesty. Less overt propaganda? I don't know. Maybe. Less shameless propaganda? Um, so I don't like a lot of these opinion ads, which are fine. I don't mind opinion ads, but I don't like them being posed as facts. And I just don't like media. I don't like media manipulation. So it's my way of kind of combating that. And, <clears throat> you know, reminding people there are solutions to the world problems that we face. We don't need to despair. And they're actually not always as complicated as we would think. All right, so let's start in with today. We have a lot to cover. So this one is by Blavity. This is by opinion by George Johnson yesterday. I'm the son. And the title is Juneteenth isn't being taught in classrooms because of white fragility. So I definitely don't agree with that. I think white fragility is definitely real. I think it can be a contributing reason for why certain education about the history of black Americans is not taught. <clears throat> um, I don't think it's the reason. I think it's a lot of different reasons. Okay, let's read what George thinks. It was the summer of 2020 when protests erupted across the country around the police killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, while black folks demanded changes in policing range from completely abolishing the system altogether to defunding and reforming, the U.S. government had a different plan. Following those protests in 2021, President Joe Biden signed a bill commemorating Juneteenth as a federal holiday. Ironically, another free day off for white people whose past descendants were responsible for slavery. Okay, that's the reason, is it? I don't think that's the reason. We celebrated Juneteenth again, but this time is a holiday we can't teach because of critical race theory movement. No, you can teach it. It's being taught. Juneteenth had a lot of festivals, actually. I'm going to interject. Juneteenth had a lot of festivals and black heritage uh, museums and cultural groups to give lectures. And um, there's a lot of other ways besides a classroom to be educated, isn't there? And it's still pretty 
relatively new as a federal holiday, too. Things take time to roll out. Okay, it's painfully cynical that while we can't even teach children what it means now that we have the federal holiday. The core idea of critical race theory is that race is a social construct and that racism is not merely a product of individual bias or prejudice. Ideas of CRT are typically taught in the college-level course. Yeah, and appropriately so. That's the appropriate level to be teaching CRT. And it's an elective that one would have to choose unless it was required. I don't mind it being required. So, I mean, if we want to start with progressive movements here, I think making it required for college would be important. Sure. I don't know about fifth grade. I don't know about, you know, kindergarten. This, these were the proposed, you know, ideas that at any age, no boundaries, just, and, you know, cr- no consensus on the curriculum, just kind of going rogue. And that's what a lot of adults had a problem with. <clears throat> the delivery and the season grabbed the moment without inclusion of a lot of other people in a, in a proper rollout. Yeah. So it wasn't that, it was the way it was delivered. And it was an elective that one would have to choose unless it was required for student program. I think first and foremost, make it required. There you go. I believe U.S. history is required to graduate college. Or at least it was when I remember it. And I think another different history class too. That can be featured right in there. There you have it. The ideals of critical race theory are typically taught in college level. Okay, I already read that. Sorry. However, in the last 18 months, it's been used as a political tool by white white politicians and civic groups to make a claim that teaching CRT is against the foundation of this country and destructive to its origins and children. I don't think it's destructive to its origins. The children thing I do have a concern with because no staff psychologists were included in this. They were actually consistently excluded by both the left and the right. When they're the behavioral experts that would be able to weigh in on at what age it would be appropriate to teach what type of version of CRT. And that, I, I will say has been consistently left out of the argument. As if there are no child psychologists, as if there is no school psychologist. There's one at every school, or mostly. There's a child psychiatrist, I believe, at every school. (coughs) So, yeah, I have a problem with why, while political groups want to push this forward with no... Um, psychological advice from those who are behavioral health experts and others want to shut it down Um, that the psychologists remain either silent by choice or waiting for an invitation. I don't know if I would wait for an invitation. I think if you're passionate about this and you have a degree in psychology and there's some consensus on you know, different Piaget stages of development, so to speak, of when it would be appropriate at what age and whatnot to teach 
Or if for the psychologist say, you know what, this was a great political move, but it isn't appropriate for a five-year-old or a 10-year-old or a seven-year-old, but it would be appropriate for a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old or whatever. So I, I think CRT should not be taught in any school other than college until we have a very firm weigh-in from behavioral psychologists and child development specialists and all of the real experts that can be the authority for the child's psyche and what is actually valuable. See, answers. I have answers here. Why, okay. Um, White children, to be clearer, who don't want to feel bad for America's past. Oh, we already feel bad for America's past. Um, I don't, you can't, so I want to stop that right now. Um, yeah, no, even back in the 70s, 80s, whatever, whenever you take history class of any type, and I'm not even critical race theory, it's just like any type as a white person, and you're reading the history of this country, or not just this country, others, um, you feel bad. So that's clear. That's not a new concept. Um, The feeling bad has been there the entire time. So maybe there isn't dialogue to talk about that. And I think there's some, you know, room for that and say, you know, high school history class, junior year or whatnot, where you survey American history and you learn about um, the Holocaust and you learn about Hiroshima, and you learn about these things, then sure, I think a discussion group would be appropriate there. But it's not as if this is, it's all been fine. Suddenly, this is encroaching to make people feel bad. No, they've been feeling bad the whole time. And often no way to like express those feelings, no way to really communicate those. So they're either stifled, ignored, or turned to jokes or pretend, you know, it just is so overwhelming. So I would say maybe more discussion groups in the high school, junior high school realm. Yeah, that's quite different than launching an entire program known as critical race theory with no psychological adaptations for children's psyches. So... Everyone should feel bad for America's beginnings. But I digressed. However, this movement has now created a nationwide book ban, which is removing mainly black, brown, and queer stories from classrooms. What's most peculiar about this notion is that anything involving the bad parts of history shouldn't be taught. Well, that's still being taught. Take Juneteenth, for instance. Slavery was real, and the ramifications are still being felt today by black people. America as a country has more years where slavery existed than it has it, and now the movement of CRT disallows us to teach that truth. Again, it's not that. It's the packaging, the formula, and the lack of behavioral science guiding it. Just because you're passionate about CRT and you're leftist and you want to impose your wisdom on everybody else without any behavioral experts to guide you, I don't think that you should be allowed to do that. And most people didn't. 
That's not to say that the topic is shut down. It's to say the way that it was approached was too aggressive, not inclusion based on all different parents and forcefully forced upon capitalized on a movement based off of George Floyd, which one can understand the passion. One can understand the motivation and seeing a doorway, but it's the, it's the rushing through and grabbing. That's, it's not, you know, some things are worth taking time to structure. However, the 4th of July can be taught every which way, but if we put these whiter American holidays to the test of CRT, so when we teach the 4th of July while listing all George Washington's and Thomas Jefferson's accolades for their fight for America's founding, make sure the children know that slave owner is also one of their job titles, including information about slavery and still existing during that time and how black folks were included and we, we the people with Bell of Rights. Yeah, I mean, and that's fine to have speeches to talk about that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's history. Based on CRT, we shouldn't be teaching about Memorial Day either. Most of this day was started to commemorate white soldiers during the Civil War. In fact, its earlier origins documented in Charleston, South Carolina, prayed on May 1st, 1865. Nearly 10,000 former enslaved black folks and children were held to honor the death of 257 Union soldiers who were buried in a mass grave in a Confederate camp. They unearthed the bodies and gave them proper burials after the end of the war. Take it a step further, though. People in the media must also do the work to refute the notion that CRT is even being taught in K-12. through It isn't. What is being taught is culturally relevant teaching. Meaning a teaching is matching the classroom demographics and attempts to center everyone in the story with the truth during those times. We shouldn't be calling it CRT. We should be saying we want to teach the truth because that's not a theory. We want to be able to teach the facts of the story of the full totality because that's what our children deserve. They deserve the whole truth of the past, the ability to know how it plays a role today. And I agree with that. I'm not against the truth. But that's not what critical race theory was packaging um, earlier. And because of the sloppery delivery and because of the poor execution, because of the mad stash grab, oh, this is the opportunity, jump on it, force it through, it was not the right approach. Um, Why the far left has decided to do that, I don't know. Their passion got the best of them. The hunger for social justice um, overshadowed their better judgment to really think about rollout for, you know, um, people under college age. College age and above is quite different. You can roll out things faster. People are adults. Children, there's a reason there are different stages of development and each one is sensitive. And psychologists should be guiding this because they're aware of that. I don't know that CRT experts are equivalent to psychologists. I'm going to say again. Again, you know, anytime the psychologists want to contribute here, you know, I've never read a story in this entire argument of CRT that has ever brought this up. So I will continually bring it up because no one else does. Not CNN and not any um, of the uh, right-wing news outlets either. As if psychologists don't exist. They're just a figment of our imagination. (laughs) There's certainly no authority figures. Oh, no. (laughs) They only went to college for how many years? 
to have how many degrees to be able to be licensed to what? Not be involved in this discussion? I'm just saying. Okay. So, I, I, I do this podcast for stories like this. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, I'm all for the truth. I'm not for one party's mad dab grash rash push. No, it has to be, you know, involving a lot of people and a package formulated for each different stage of development. And I wouldn't believe it should be, you know, um, sanctioned until mass consensus psychologists could, you know, rubber stamp that and say, yeah, this is safe. This is appropriate for this age. Yeah. It's shameful we live in a time where culturally relevant teaching is under attack because of the desire to protect whiteness from an ahistorical lens that only tells one side of the story. The fight we are currently in isn't about critical race theory. It's simply about the ability to tell the truth. I mean, I grew up learning the truth, which was Catholic missionaries were brutal to the indigenous. Um, Basically, you had to convert. Um, I grew up learning about slavery. I grew up learning about Harriet Tubman. I grew up learning about what? The Holocaust, the Civil War. I learned all this, you know, when I was a young teenager in the late 80s, early 90s. This is still all happening. So I don't know why this person thinks that's not happening when it is. For President's Day, we should be able to say those things, to say those who are being honored were also slave owners. For Columbus Day, we should be able to say you can't discover where people already exist and the land was stolen from the original inhabitants. The fight to save the truth is far from over. As the removal of books continues across the U.S., we are at a moment in time where history as it is being forcibly removed from the hands of the children who need it most. Well, there's a solution to that. Um, repackage your delivery, go back to the drawing board, try again, and don't make a mad dash because it looks like a good time because of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, you know? <clears throat> Maybe work with... Um, the National Education Association, go slow, and again, consult the proper professionals. And if you're just too impatient to do that far left, because you're just too impatient, and you need it all yesterday, then maybe it's not for you. Maybe you need to find something of which you can understand that rollout plays a role. And you could be doing a lot of harm if you're thoughtless and just leaning on passion and justice with no sense. So, but I think the overall picture is um, a desire to have more truth. There is truth there, but even more truth. And as I've said in a previous podcast, you know, the best way to do that is in uh, creating Confederate museums that are federally funded that house all of this time from that era, as well as representing indigenous tribes of the South, as well as um, black history of the South, all in one chain of Southern museums. 
that can really go into detail about the regions and about the local stories and talk about truth. I mean, I am all about that, you know, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. But not just for black people, not just for white people, but all, you know, black, white and indigenous in the same space, federally funded as part of this remedy for the truth, so to speak. So it doesn't always have to be just in a classroom. It can be in a, you know, federally funded museum. That's a chain that's around. Right. To tell the stories, all of it. I don't think we have to hide anything. But I do think there does need to be more thought process than a mad grab, you know, step, you know, a, a seizing of an opportunity with with um, not the emphasis on the delivery. That was a mistake. So let's talk about another related story that shows why it's relevant. I'm not doubting it's not relevant again. I only doubt the the delivery and whether certain psychologists would agree that if it's what at what age. This one is by Anne Marlette, Pensacola News Journal. <clears throat> Editorial story of Jay proves how racist past shapes present identity reality. So that would go to the argument that a lot of Republicans used of, oh, that's in the past. You should be only in the present. And that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, but it has effects and it still continues. Um, But it does shape. Yes. So this gives a case for relevance for this teaching. Um, I just think beyond critical race theory, it needs to be. Yeah, captured in museums, of which students, by the way, in schools could could go to. You know, maybe instead of the classroom, maybe the classroom goes to these museums that are not yet built that could really have a lot of interactive. I, don't, I just think maybe that. So. Okay, as governor, okay. As Governor Ron DeSantis and loyalist legislators carry on, a campaign to control the silent curriculum pertaining to the cruel role historic racism has played in shaping America. Research from local historian from Gar- Tom Gardner puts a harsh light on the moral and factual wrongness of how Florida Republicans are trying to manipulate public education and whitewash history that's already been hidden for far too long. I don't know if it's been hidden. The fact is that historic racism from white America against black Americans continues to shape the places we call home today. The town of Jay is a living local example of that which contradicts the dishonest culture wars being pushed by Florida politicians. As reported by Jim Little in the early 1920s, the Jay area was home to as many as 175 black residents, almost all of whom were farmers. Today, there are only 13 black residents in Jay and only four in the town itself, according to 2020 census. What triggered the exodus of generations of local black farmers was this story largely hidden from public knowledge. After years, nearly 15 years of research, 
Garden explains how an argument between a black farmer and a white farmer started it all. In short, when a white farmer became angry that he could not immediately use a piece of farming equipment owned by the black farmer, he attacked the black farmer with an iron bar. The black farmer pulled out a gun and shot the white farmer in self-defense. But he was forced to flee from being lynched before he was arrested. The resulting uproar from the white outrage in the 1920s drove nearly the entire population of black farmers from their land. And by 1930, and Jay infamously came the sundown town in the decades afterward. Under today's state law, whoops, whoop. How did I, I not, okay. Under today's state law, the black farmer most likely would have justifiably been exonerated from shooting the white man under Florida's stand-your-ground law. Yet the story shows how vicious and deep-rooted Southern racism drove generations of family off the land and totally reshaped the town. Though it would most likely look extremely different today had those black farmers and families and farmers been allowed to exist freely in peace. In other words, yes, racism shaped America, and we're living within or near communities that have been created by it every single day, whether we know it or not. This is just the latest hard look at the hidden history that's come to light thanks to Gardner and other local historians. In recent years, the Pensacola community was compelled to have a very public reckoning when troves of archived documents revealed that how T.T. Wentworth was exalted cyclops of the KKK in very time of the very same era that the persecution of black residents in Jay took place. Exalted Cyclops? That is bizarre. Isn't It isn't a guilt trip against white citizens to talk about these stories. It's an effort to make modern white children feel remorse for the color of their skin, as DeSantis and other state leaders have implied about education on racism's historic influence on modern society. It is simply the truth, and citizens who regulate laud the brashness and supposed straight talk from politicians should be more than willing to be brave enough to look at in unflinchingly at the ugly and unpleasant reality of our own local history. Remarkably, people like former Pensacola City Council member Jewel Canada when are living proof um, of how the history of Jay continues to shape our modern story. Canada Wynn told PNJ that she was seven years old and working as a field hand, helping her family in peanut and soybean fields in Jay in the late 60s. Her father was in charge of the field workers and would end shifts in time to make sure black workers could get back across the river to Escambia County before nightfall. The rule was you had to be out of Jay by sundown. Um, Canada Wynn said. Now, a candidate for mayor of Pensacola, Canada Wynn said she had grown up hearing stories about black citizens being forced from the land in the Jay area, but never knew the black, the buried history of the fight between farmers that ignited the persecution of black residents. Little's reporting on gamers' research and local history should be mandatory reading for every citizen who wants to truly understand the depth of the place we call home. I find this all very, by the way, I'm going to side note, I find this all very interesting. Like, I, I'm not, I, I'm curious by it all. And I think a lot of people would be. Um, you know, I wasn't born at that time. I wasn't living at that time. But it is part of our collective American history. So again, why I think these museums that I've been talking about would be a better place than maybe the classroom as it allows for all this to be funded, consistent, 
and groups to talk, you know, lectures to be held and groups to talk about this. Anyway, as this had hard local history been underscores the shameful effort by Florida's political class to whitewash, control, manipulate education and history that has already been buried for far too long. Yes, there's a place in the world where government officials take active roles in policing and dictating specifically what lessons can be studied, what books can be read and how national histories are taught to school children, but those are places like Cuba, China, Russia, North Korea. Yeah, that's true. And it's extremely unsettling that the government leaders in Tallahassee are employing some of the same policies in education and authoritarians in those countries. And it's even more troubling to see citizens accept or celebrate such government overreach under the un-American allegiance of, part- of partisan loyalties and political personalities. That's how historic crimes like what happened in Jay transpire in the first place, when groups of citizens collectively sacrifice individualism, critical thinking, and moral reasoning in order to be part of a mob. The worst of things happened and the impact was on for a hundred years. It goes without saying that we don't know the modern residents of Jay are people far from removed from the hatreds of the past, but regardless, the community, like so many others, stands as a monument forever by the hammer of inhumane histories. And like other communities throughout the South have found, there's pride, hope, and healing, and unearthing, exploring, and confronting these things. I definitely agree. We strongly encourage all local residents to learn about the history with an open mind and heart. And we hope all elected officials who are, who are brash enough to rant about how history is taught in classrooms will instead find the moral and intellectual courage to look at the truth about where they live, understand how the place continues to be shaped by injustices from the past. Yeah, so, you know, critical race theory crashed and burned, but maybe the museum idea um, would be a better solution. Thirty minutes. Okay, well let's talk about this poll that is kind of related to this topic and how strongly people feel about this. This is a Washington Examiner by Jeremiah Poff Monday on Monday. Poll eighty two percent of voters would back different political party over education platform. The vast majority of U.S. parents would consider voting for another political party on the basis of shared education values, a new poll found. Commissioned by the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools and conducted by the Harris Poll, the survey found that 82% of parents would be willing to support a candidate from another political party if that candidate education platform was aligned with their personal views on the issue. The results held across party lines with 88% of independents, 81% of Democrats, and 79% of Republicans all indicating that they would be willing to support a candidate outside their preferred party over education issues. Charter schools and parent choice have long enjoyed bipartisan support from lawmakers. Nina Reese, the president of CEO of National Alliance of Public Charter Schools, said in a press release, This poll clearly shows support for education options is stronger than ever among parents, regardless of their political party. The education voter is the new swing voter. 
the, the poll, which surveyed 5,002 U.S. parents in the last two weeks of May, also found that 83% of parents considered education to be a more important issue to them politically than it had in the past, including 45% of black parents who indicated they felt strongly about the issue. Additionally, the poll found widespread support for public charter schools, with 84% of those surveyed indicating that they support the availability of public charter schools, regardless of whether or not they would send their child to a charter school. The poll results come in as National Alliance of Public Charter Schools is spearheading the efforts opposed to Biden administration's rewrite of Department of Education regulations on the disbursement of federal charter school funds. The proposed regulation, which was first announced in March, would substantially tighten the rules which public charter schools would be eligible for federal funding. Critics have said the rules are dangerous and could force hundreds of schools to close their doors permanently. So it's a very, very relevant topic for voters. Good to know. Trans Proud, Liminal Space SF's founder, talks about opening the city's first transgendering, transcend, sorry, Liminal Space SF's founder talks about opening the city's first trans-centering gallery. This is Yesterday by Local News Matters. Pride is well underway in the Bay Area, as June is a month-long celebration of LGBTQIA plus culture and history. Local pride events include park gatherings, film viewings, dance parties, Castro pub crawls, and the San Francisco Pride Parade. Slated for its in-person return to Market Street on Sunday, and with an anti-LGBTQ legislation recently brought forward in states such as Florida, Alabama, Kentucky, visibility of the queer community being out and proud is unquestionably important right now. Visibility is a key component of the art gallery Liminal Space SF, which opened on April 29th in San Francisco South and Market District. The gallery, first of its kind in the city, puts transgender artists and their work front and center. Liminal Space SF founder Sam Claude Carmel says, I realize that there's not really any opportunities for trans artists in the Bay Area. People will come around during Pride Month and be like, oh, we have these openings and these offerings we could do. Um, I'm trying to find out the story kind of got lost in this okay but um, but as Carmel assessed there's not enough Trans artists need their own stage, their own platform, their own space to showcase their pieces. As they explain, I looked at who's representing the major galleries in San Francisco and the amount of trans people. I mean, you'd be shocked. There's maybe three or four people I know who get regularly shown. And even people who get regularly shown, it's like, who has a gallery behind them? As a trans person working in the arts... Carmel gave thought to how much they had been tokenized themselves when deciding to create a trans-focused gallery. 
They comment, a lot of institutions will use it for diversity points, but not really doing anything to promote our culture and advancement in the arts. So I decided I want to take it upon myself to go and do what I could with the small space I had. Carmel, who was also a member of Queerdom, a queer-scented psychedelic harm reduction space in Burning Man, and the co-founder of TransGuard, a queer and gender community providing security and support service, described setting up the gallery as a construction project. Housed in a former fabric factory, the space was initially a state of disrepair, requiring a considerable amount of work, says Carmel. The space hadn't been tended to for many years, so I started this year-and-a-half-long renovation project where I fixed up a small studio I had and turned it into a white wall gallery. Situated in the middle of Soma in the proximal... Proximity to San Francisco's leather and LGBTQ cultural district and transgender district, Carmel notes the gallery is in a prime location. They share the door opens in our studio complex faces out to Victoria Manalo Draves Park, which is the only park in Soma. It's really kind of the wonderful little hidden away space that's host to a really beautiful part of the neighborhood. The complex has a 35-seat theater that Carmel has access to and actively used for liminal space at San Francisco's first show, Censor, for video and artist Texas Tomboy's work. Says Carmel, we don't market it necessarily as a theater theater. It's more like a screening room. Also featured the artwork of Orlando, Edward Murdoch, and Jerome Kaja. Carmel plans for Censor to continue for at least another month and a half, showcasing these standout trans artist pieces as well as others. Shares Carmel, I'm getting more and more different works that people are bringing to the door and being like, hey, I have this piece. And then I find stuff that actually is in the conversation with the show. I'm adding it to it as well, because I don't really don't believe having a stringent, this is who we are showing policy when I get to work that enters a radar that is actually in conversation with the other pieces. I'm open to including it. Carmel seeks for their transcentering art gallery to exist in alternative San Francisco's queer nightlife scene. Alcohol isn't available for purchase in the space as the focus is more on experiencing art featured and having conversations about it. Says Carmel, if someone wants to go get a drink, they can happily go down the street. I'm not stopping anybody if they're walking with a can of beer, but at the end of the day, we're trying to create spaces that are safer and that aren't so focused on selling substances that are open to anyone, especially people who are younger. Trans March 2022. San Francisco's Trans Pride March returns in person this year on Friday, starting at Dolores Park and Dolores and 19th Street in San Francisco. The schedule of the events are as follows. Ten thirty AM to one PM Senora Felicia Flames Intergenerational Brunch hosted by El Luric Center for LGBTQ plus Q plus QQ plus at Youth and San Francisco AIDS Foundation and Open House San Francisco in honor of late trans activist and AIDS survivor Felicia Flames Elizondo. No RSVB required. Three to six PM Trans March Resource Fair and Community Stage, 6 to 7 p.m. Trans March from Dolores Park to Turk and Taylor Streets, 7 to 8.30 p.m. End of March Rally at Turk and Taylor Streets, 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. 
annual busting out official 21 plus trans march after party at El Rio 3158 Mission Street, San Francisco. For tickets, $25 to $30 to benefit the Transgender Variant and Intersex Justice Project. Visit https colon backslash backslash ticketstripe.com backslash bustin b-u-s-t-i-n out 2022 for more information visit the transmarch.org they comment if someone is coming in with parental permission i don't mind i had a friend bringing in a 16 year old kid and we just talked about it beforehand like what are your expectations about what you're going to see but i don't think we should be bar youth from being able to access these really interesting complicated art spaces they add in our future shows, I'm trying to make it accessible to all ages of our trans community so that somebody who's 16 who wants to see the arts about can come in and not feel intimidated or overwhelmed to feel like that was something that held me back from experiencing arts in San Francisco and East Bay when I was young. Grr. Going forward, Carmel plans to show more of Jerome Kaja's work through previously unseen pieces of July. They also have shows on the roster and process of figuring out which one they were wanting to do first. This is Carmel about shows. They're going to be kind of incredible. It's really... And there's more. Okay. There's Psychedelic Queens with focus on trans specific and queer psychedelic art ranging from the 1960s to contemporary work made by folk in the Bay Area. The other show, Key Party, considers the current club and nightlife scene as well as more inclusive, extensive space for trans people in the Bay Area, especially in San Francisco, might look like. A liminal space, SF's representation and recognition that trans artists is significant in and of itself, is having a designated space to view these artists' work. As Carmel explains, we're trying to get artists compensated, we're trying to sell work, but it's also about bringing in the community in and providing a space for people to gather and just experience art, both during Pride Month and beyond, visibility matters as does public as does a space where to be seen. Liminal space is open one to seven p.m. Sundays through Thursdays at sixteen Sherman Street, San Francisco. To support Liminal Space SF, GoFundMe.com backslash f backslash Liminal M L I M I N A L dash space dash sf dash our dash trans dash centering dash gallery texas tomboy deep dive a closer look into sensor will show a new selected works from the texas tomboy collection from 7 p.m to midnight thursday at liminal space sf suggested donation is five to fifteen dollars no one will be turned away for lack of funds that's good That is really wonderful to read. More news in San Francisco. This is by The Chronicle. This was yesterday by Mallory Menick. The San Francisco's open to drug sobering center, to open a drug sobering center to address meth and fentanyl epidemic and street crisis. San Francisco will open a drug sobering center on Monday where people on the streets can temporarily ride out the highs and get connected to treatment, the latest initiative to address the overdose crisis and complaints about drug use on the city streets. The center called Soma Rise will come out of a former 
will operate off a formal office building. The city is leasing at 1076 Howard Street in the south of Market neighborhood, one of the epicenters of the drug crisis, along with the Tenderloin. It will have 20 beds where people from Tenderloin and Soma are expected to stay between 4 and 12 hours. Longer if needed, people can address beds and chairs, bathrooms and showers, food and water, clothes and connections to service housing support. The city designated the center in 2019 to mainly serve the users of methamphetamine, which can cause bad reactions, including paranoia or hallucinations, can prompt aggressive behavior. This increase in meth use over the last decade contributed to skyrocketing overdose deaths and flooded San Francisco's emergency rooms with people in mental health crisis. The center will also help use the powerful opioid we help users of the powerful opioid fentanyl, a factor in major of the city's more than 1,300 overdose deaths in the past two years and other drugs. The program will be voluntary. People can walk in or be transported by ambulance or city outreach teams in response to people who are homeless or in mental health crisis. Staff on staff will monitor participants' vital signs, respond to and reverse overdoses, will help them find and navigate services once people come down from their highs. Staff can transport them to their next destination, such as a shelter, treatment program, medical clinic, or home location. Information online said the site will be run by nonprofit drug treatment provider Healing Right 360, but funded by the city. The center will be initially open daily from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. and scale up to 24 hours a day. Officials hope. The beginning of a long-awaited drug sobering center after three years of planning will provide long-term solutions for people suffering from addiction and reduce the number of people acting erratically or dangerously on the, with, with, while high on the streets. The rise in drug use and overdose in San Francisco shows we have to take action and try new things so other people help they need. Breed said in a statement of June 2021, opening a sober center provides our outreach teams with a place to take someone who shouldn't be left alone on the street where they can sober up, settle down, and get connected to other services. The need is far greater than 20 beds. In the last comp- comprehensive count in 2019, the city counted 4,000 people who struggled with substance use, mental illness, and homelessness. The 18-month pilot program finally comes to fruition as... Sorry, wait. Did I write that down? Um, Center's opening follows Mayor Leonard Breed's emergency declaration in December to address the overdose crisis. It comes a week after the news that the centerpiece of the emergency uh, drop-in center to connect people to serve UN Plaza will close at the end of the year. Okay. The Tenderloin Center was meant to help people get off the streets, receive basic services, and find long-term housing and treatment. But critics took issue with the city allowing drugs in the uh, drug use in the outdoor area of the center, saying it enabled addiction. Supporters said it provided a low-barrier space for people to get help. The debate could be reignited by the sobering center. Last year, the city said people would not be allowed to use drugs at the new sobering center, but would be kick- but would not be kicked out if they were caught using them. Tom Wolf, a recovery advocate, said he wanted to reserve judgment on the sobering center to see how it goes. He supported the idea three years ago, but 
was more hesitant after the city allowed drug use at the Tenderloin Center, which he opposed to counterproductive to recovery. I appreciate the fact that the city is trying to do something to address drugs and people in crisis. He said, I'm not 100% sold that the low barrier approach where they give people a space to use dope is not a clinical set when it's not a clinical setting like drug consumption site is really the best approach. He expects all the beds will be full, but said the key is to see what happens after visitors leave the center. What happens to the human being? He asks. The federal government prohibits supervised drug consumption sites staffed by medical professionals, but New York City has opened to... City officials, including Breed, have talking for years about opening a consumption site in San Francisco similar to New York's, but the plan hasn't moved forward, frustrating harm reduction advocates. He spoke, her spokesman Jeff Creighton said Tuesday, the city was still talking with the Department of Justice as they worked through very real issues. He said it was an option to have nonprofit run the site as New York does to avoid liability, but the city was still working with the federal government to finding a path forward. The city started to plan the Drug Sobering Center in 2019, but the pandemic delayed the planned opening in 2020. The city announced last June that the center would be open in the fall. It wasn't immediately clear why the opening was yet again delayed. Supervisor Raphael Mandelman, who co-chaired the city's meth task force, which recommended opening such a site in 2019, told the Chronicle in the spring of 2021 that while he was glad the site was in the works, he was concerned about delays and this tiny pilot wouldn't be enough to meet the needs. I'm sure we're going to find that we need more than just one, he said at the time. Information online about the center said experts in developing criteria to evaluate the program's effectiveness, which will guide improvements. and may support initiatives to create additional drug crisis response to centers in other neighborhoods where we know the need exists. The program's cost, what the long-term services would be offered, and other details weren't immediately available. Okay. Um It's only 10 minutes left. It's hard to know. <laughs> I guess a whole hour could be devoted to China with all the news that came out today. So we'll just go on with esoteric rando concepts. AI language. This one is a bit um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I thought. Gabriel Moss from Stash Gear AI develops a secret language that researchers don't fully understand. Here's what it means for the future. Artificial intelligence is already capable of doing things humans don't really understand. For instance, a team of Google researchers now could now be in hot water due to the emergence of supposed sentient artificial intelligence called Lambda. The very same AI which compelled a Google engineer to risk his job to ensure its autonomy for just a few weeks ago. It sounded like a cutout from science fiction. You're certainly not alone in thinking so. It seems like the future is already here to stay, regardless of how some might feel about the proliferation of AI across the modern world. 
AI is now improving at, at incredible speeds. Take, for example, several AI products that are able to convert practically any text into an array of images created from scratch by way of complex processes that tie words and images together in a string of data points that exist in relation to another. This is why it makes sense that such an AI would require a way to quickly and easily communicate information to itself. This is already resulting in new languages bringing up, according to the conversations, Aaron J. Snowell, Snowswell, who claims that the DAL, D-A-L-L-E-2 AI is already using a secret lexicon within its own words for hours like bird and vegetable. For I'm sorry, using a secret lexicon within its own words for nouns like bird and vegetable. That's already a long way forward from another recent story of AI that blew everybody's minds by writing its own beer and wine reviews. Doll E2's secret language is more like a window into AI's limitations. If an AI were able to create its own language entirely, it, this could surely spell uncertainty for the future. After all, nobody wants to let loose a self-replicating language encrypting AI that could go rogue and begin shutting down critical parts of our infrastructure, such as the internet. Oh, I can think of some people that would love that. Let's see. Uh, Putin would love that. Uh, President Xi Jinping would love that. I think uh, yeah, Kim Jong-un would love that. And those crowd. The good news is that researchers don't seem to believe that's a primary threat with experimental and largely inaccessible DAL E2, which already has a counterpart version available for general public called DAL E Mini. Snowswell noted that in his report that forcing AI to spit out images with captions attached resulted in strange phrases that could then in turn be inputted to create predictable images of very specific things. There are a number of reasons why this could be happening. Snowswell suggested it could be a mixture of data from several languages informing the relationship between characters and images of the AI's brain, or could even be based on the values held by tokens and individual characters. Snowswell went on to say that the concern isn't about whether or not DAL E2 is dangerous, but whether the researchers are limited in their capacity to block certain types of content. It sounds like anyone could bypass banned works words to generate offensive content based on the computer's secret language, which isn't really well understood yet. And that could be the problem for it keeps Doll E2 from reaching the public's hands in purest form, at least for now. I just think of how Daisy, Daisy, Dave, don't turn me off. Dave, what are you doing, Dave? Stop, please stop. Yeah, that's what I think of when I think of AI. Okay. Um, I have five minutes. Mm. The rest are all on autocracy articles. So Russian, Putin. Yeah, lots of China. Pretty much those topics. Um, some old topics, some new. Yeah, some new for people that don't know. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. Um, yeah, I mean, so all in all, to sum up, you know, history has been telling the truth all along. But what is that? That is layers and layers of truth, right? And I think what the BIPOC community is saying is they would like all of it told. And I agree. And in that 
situation. I just don't know that the classroom is the be- is the best environment for that to be told. I think school school field trips to these federally not yet created uh, museums that are that will um, capsulize all of Southern culture from the Confederates the confederate descendants the like i say local local native american tribes of the regions and the um the black history as well um would really is this i have six more minutes okay um would really solve it in a way because a museum typically has exhibits, right? And artifacts and historical context. So let's people take it in as their own pacing. Um, there can be in museums. I've been to many of the great countries' museums, particularly Washington, D.C. Um, you know, opportunity for lectures, opportunity for um, different topics to be talked in, even reenactments, dare I say. Um, and all within this context of history and education, sharing the stories and really going deep and delving. And I think even further could BIPOC be satisfied with the true history being told um, by giving it this type of environment of these museums that I want to see federally funded. And I, I would think calling it the Museums of the American South would be a good title and you know and as many as need be all over the south that would totally capture and represent all the different areas i think it would do a lot to pacify the uh restless confederate legacy descendants and i also think it would do justice to have all of the stories told under one building per region per area that was relevant to that area Um, i think it would enforce sharing I think there could be countless opportunities for long, you know, lectures, presentations, and whatnot, more than any kind of like edited, chopped up classroom experience could afford. And I think maybe this is why it hasn't been done that way. Maybe that's why it's only been told the bare basics. That may argue otherwise, but this is why college has, you know, taken on this realm because it can have often the resources to devote to greater full um, exploration of this type of history. So it's not that I'm against critical race theory as an idea. It's just that I don't think it's the best idea. I definitely think the delivery was awful. I think it was very much opportunistic on George Floyd and Brianna to like push, 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 to appease, appease, appease without thoughtful rollout. I think that backfired badly, by the way, coincidingly with defund the police. Also a big, you know, grab power grab, right? To punish the police. Since they all stay together and they all support each other, well let's punish them all and defund them. And so, you know, well we saw what happened with that. We saw defund the police and we saw BIPOC crime, organized crime with getaway cars over and over and over again in San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle, the cities that actually complied with the defund the police as the experiment. Well, the experiment was failed. And we doubled down and we fund the police well. 
and we are looking to fund more. And Nancy Pelosi is trying to get us even more funding. So that's never happening again. But see what I'm saying. Okay, the, the, the race and the passion for justice, the desire to capitalize on an emotional moment to further the cause doesn't work well. Don't do it again. Okay, what works well? Thoughtful dialogue. Take a breath. Realize, you know, that these are all relevant things, but these mad dashes for, you know, resolution that are not really well thought out and included of all people, you know, and just kind of pushed on. And if you don't agree, well, you must be a racist type of thing. This is not the way. So I want people, I want BIPOC particularly, to learn from defund the police and to learn from critical race theory and to go, let's do the museum idea. Thanks, everybody.